Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. Remember to subscribe to our free podcast so you won't miss any of our illuminating content. Here is episode 213. I realize that we're born different heights, we're born different everything, and intelligence is also different, I think. Uh, we're not all equal in that regard. Um, however, curiosity can be that great equalizer. Benjamin Franklin once said, Do not curse the darkness, rather light a candle instead. If you're ready to set your mind on fire, then prepare yourself for the luminous mind with your host, Rebecca Bowman. Today's fire starter is Matt Murray. Matt Murray is the chief curiosity curator of What If 360 and author of the book of What If. As designer of What If 360 curiosity-based learning and innovation process, Matt facilitates experiences that connect curiosity with action that leads to innovation. He is a former English professor and social entrepreneurship professor and coordinator of innovation at Churchill Institute for Global Engagement at Westminster College. A graduate of Columbia University's Teacher College, he has over a decade of teaching experience in five countries on three different continents as a public school teacher, Peace Corps volunteer, and college professor. He believes curiosity is a natural resource that can be converted into energy powerful enough to not only power our planet, but to guide it. Welcome, Matt. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm really excited to talk about your message. You know, he's got a great uh, TEDx talk that I looked at and perused his book a little bit. <laughs> but before we get into any of that, you know, about your message, please tell our audience a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, well, well first of all, thanks for having me. I guess the to start about myself is um, I'm just a super curious person. And I'm starting to learn just to uh, start with that because pretty much anything else I could say about myself, I've, I've come to realize over time has all really come from and as a result of just a crazy uh, nonstop curiosity, right? Everything that I do from the, I guess I was going to say career in air quotes, <laughs> but the thing, because I don't know if I have a single career, right? But uh, anything, you know, the way I spend my time, um, whether it's professionally or personally, it really just all comes from curiosity, you know, and asking this question, well, what if I do this? Or what if this could be different? Um, so so uh, everything, you know, from majoring, uh, you know, in English as a, as a young, you know, as a younger person than I am now to uh, going into the Peace Corps to uh, then going on to becoming, you know, to, to start writing, uh, going into social entrepreneurship. Um, and now the work that I do around the world, really every step along the way was just asking, um, you know, what if, and in more ways than not, like what if things could be better, you know, not just different or, or new, but what if we could really make changes that, that affected people's lives and the planet in positive ways. That's awesome. Well, I kind of want to hear the background story, you know, of like, take mm -hmm. us through, you know, your degree as an English student, you know, through uh -huh. all of that with Peace Corps, and then how that's helped evolve your message. You know, I want to know the inspiration behind mm -hmm. that message. Certainly. And it's funny, too, because uh, I know, you know, a big part of your program is about how your, you know, your paradigms have changed and how people evolved over time. And I laugh a lot, because one of the most common questions is like, you know, where did what if start or how did this start? And I laugh because I think every time I've been asked, I end up giving a different answer. And it's not because I'm, I'm, I'm being disingenuous. And, uh, 
it's just one I never uh, when I started doing a lot of this I, for whatever reason it never it never uh, occurred to me to really dig deep into where it all started right so well I'm smiling because I think one way I've evolved over time is just really um, tracking backwards like where did all of this begin because my initial response was always when I saw my first TED talk yeah and uh, the first TED talk I saw was really only about five years ago. And we started what was then called the What If Conference. Um, and we still do this, but it's, it's kind of where a lot of What If became official, let's say. The What If Conference was in a lot of ways just a response to TED Talks. Um, not, that, not an either or, or you know, like a TED Talks are bad and we want to do something better. Just watching TED Talks and realizing that as, as an educator personally, I was always focused on student-centered learning and uh, collaborative actions. And uh, was really, really um, found it interesting that TED Talks would, would communicate some of the, the biggest, most innovative ideas on the planet, yet the, the, the mode in which they were being communicated was one of the most archaic forms. You know, you a sage on the stage, um, lecturing to a passive audience, uh, re- reinforcing these ideas of right, and this kind of the quote-unquote famous person, and then we're just here to listen and do whatever she says. <laughs> and um, it kind of bothered me, right? So we came up with a way to to limit the, let's say, the spotlight of the speakers and shine it more on the, the, the collaborative actions of the entire crowd. So instead of giving just regular lectures about what somebody accomplished or what they know, we found questionnaires to ask what if questions related to things that either weren't answered or haven't been answered yet as a way to, again, not tell people what they know, but to plant seeds so that they can collaborate uh, together to drive actions. So then the whole system of, of these, these, these uh, thought, you know, uh, uh, conferences, let's say, changed from, from a small group of people telling others something to entire crowds of people working together through designed processes to collaborate curiosity so that everybody left an event feeling like they were on the stage, that they contributed to the overall actions of the event. That's where my answer started. But then, you know, I've been doing this for a while and I realized, well, I started drilling down more into the curiosity aspect and the processes that I was designing to, you know, bring all this about. And I realized that um, in many ways, it wasn't that first TED talk um, that I saw. It was, uh, it was my time in the Peace Corps, right out of, uh, out of college. I was a um, English major, so all the stereotypes apply, right? <laughs> and uh, I found, you know, what am I going to do? I thought I was going to, you know, either be a bartender or paint homes because that's what most in- English majors I knew ended up doing. And um, I was in the piece, and both my, I should start out, both my parents were public school teachers. So uh, I intentionally majored in English literature instead of English education because I did not want to be a teacher. And nothing against the profession. I just saw my parents struggle their entire lives, uh, not just financially, that was certainly, um, it was a big struggle growing up poor, but just seeing them struggle in a lot of ways professionally, just seeing what they wanted to accomplish and the constant limitations that, that um, you know, administration and different, you know, aspects beyond them kept putting onto them. And just seeing these people who are incredibly passionate about what they were doing and, and really just living their work just to come home with that weight on them and, and not even have a, a financial, you know, kind of side to say, go, all right, well, it, you know, it's unfortunate or it's not good, but at least we've got this to make up for it. So I was really discouraged from, from being a teacher from an early age. <laughs> um, but there I was in the Peace Corps. And uh, next thing you know, uh, I was in a high school and they uh, spun me around three times and pointed to a classroom and said, uh, see you in two years, that's your class. Um, 
that's kind of where this journey began with with uh, curiosity as a natural resource, um, or at least this idea of, of curiosity as a natural resource. Because the the challenge in the Peace Corps wasn't necessarily just a you know how do we teach English, it's how do you teach English with no resources. Um, you know, I'd have a class where most of the students would have books, uh, and this was in the late '90s, right? So most of the students have books, and a couple might have a computer at home. Um, and then another class would have, uh, maybe half the students would have books, you know. And then uh, another class, that you know, all the students from the villages who who would ride donkeys to the town, and then you know, for it's just you know they have no running water, much less books, right? Yeah. And and it's in my job was the same regardless of the class is teach these lessons, accomplish these goals no matter what, and it really forced me to look for or, or reimagine what a resource is that, you know, you have no money, you have no books. We didn't have heat in the the, the school oftentimes. And, and one of the things I started to pick up on was that curiosity that, that the students, especially, you know, we had, well, I should re- rephrase that the, the curiosity in the students, no matter which class that they were in, right mattered. So we would have students in the class who had the books and the traditional resources. And if they weren't curious, they would still struggle mightily in the class. But then you go on the other side and you, you see these students with absolutely no resources and the students who just had that kind of glow in their eye of curiosity outperformed everybody. Well, and I would uh, imagine so I as think a teacher really... teaching the two different types mm-hmm. of classes, I mean, one would be super inspiring and the other would be, you know, oh man, let me help, you know, hopefully I make it through this because <laughs> it's great. You know, well, uh, goes back to what exactly. your parents might have experienced. <laughs> No, exactly. And, and uh, yeah, I always want to let people know that, you know, sometimes they say, you know, I was a Peace Corps volunteer and I work with kids. And I'm an educator. But, you know, at the end of the day, I still am selfish. <laughs> I still have, uh, you know, things that I want and everything else and, and uh, feelings and emotions and everything else. And you're spot on. And the worst thing is, is like, how do you how do you manage those emotions when you go into a class or students just through the roof, excited? And then you, you know, you turn on a dime and it's like, oh, and you're like, no, I can't be UG and yay at the same time. It's the same job. Let's, you know. Yeah. So you're exactly right. And I think one of those things that, that feeling, I try to let my emotions and, you know, experiences uh, drive positive actions or change in myself. Right. So how do we, instead of just having that same feeling every day, how do we fix it? And I think that's where we start looking at um, not just, you know, I put the responsibility on myself. So instead of saying, hey, these students who are curious are awesome, let me focus on them and ignore the others, the, the goal then became, all right, if this curiosity is what the trick is, my role then as an educator should be to facilitate this or encourage, you know, bring this out in everybody. So then my responsibility, I took upon myself as to how, how can I create lessons, activities, engagements to spark this curiosity in all of my students instead of just saying, oh, this one's that, you know. And that's part of the, the essence of, of treating curiosity as a natural resource is, is my approach to it is everybody has it, right? Or is capable of it, where, where things like, you know, intelligence or finances and some of these other things could be maybe a little more limited. And I say that lovingly. I don't consider myself mm-hmm. a super intelligent person. I have, I have a brother who's, and sister both who are far more intelligent than I am. And uh, I realized that that we're not all born, you know, we're born different heights, we're born different everything, and intelligence is also different, I think. Uh, we're not all equal in that regard. Um, however, however, curiosity is can be that great equalizer. That's um, awesome. I never thought of yes. that. That's so true. <laughs> so. Well, thanks. And, and again, this is still my exploration, so I'm open to being wrong about a lot of this, but... Uh, <laughs> 
it's just, I think if we just chase intelligence, it, it forces us to, you know, re- relegate these kids and those kids, right? Or to try to chase something that's, that may not be possible, where if we look at curiosity, um, we can kind of all get there. Yeah. And helping um, to inspire that. I really love like uh, how you've taken us down that road. I mean, even starting with the TED Talks, you know, we find a lot of us find TED Talks extremely inspiring. But like, I just mm-hmm. never really thought about it. That Yeah, you're just a completely, you know, you're just there um, passively listening to this person. But I wonder how much better those ideas that those people present on stage could be is if they were in an interactive uh, situation. I mean, you would come away inspired as the as the presenter yourself self, you know, because you're like, wow, I, mm-hmm. I got 10 more ideas. But and I did listen to um, one of your classes. I can't even remember I found it because I found the TED Talk this morning. But as you know, uh-huh. when we were connecting, I found one of your classes and it was super like I listened to it. I was doing some work and listening to it. And I was like, wow. And you could see the light in the eyes of the kids that got to participate in this. And maybe you can help direct me <laughs> to where I saw this, you know, on the internet's well, interweb mm-hmm. somewhere. <laughs> Anyway, no, I'd have to definitely look it up. And I, I can also uh, share with you actually listening to you here, just uh, something you brought up. Um, it may be relevant as well as the I'll never forget my first TED talk. Right. And, and I always have to be I always want to make sure I'm, I say this clearly um, because there are some super fanatics with TED. Right. I found this the hard way that uh, um, sometimes if you you say something that's that's I don't even want to say I'm not anti TED. I always I've, I'm very defensive now because when we started this, we found uh, a lot of people. Uh, Ted is 100% perfect and can do no wrong. And any any suggestion that, hey, let's do things differently or there could be another way, even let's collaborate, there can be a lot of resistance. So I always want to make sure it's clear is I, I love Ted. I love Ted Talks. So now that I got that out of the way, um, <laughs> the, the, the first Ted Talk I ever watched was, it's what if this is your brain on jazz? I want to say the name of it. The name is a little foggy in my head, but I'll never forget the talk. And it was about a neuroscientist who was curious about, you know, the brain, how the brain works and whether, whether or not the brain is as engaged or active during rote memorization tasks versus improv. So this neuroscientist doctor uh, brought in a classical pianist and a freestyle a hip hop artist and had them do their thing while having a CAT scan and he could watch their brain activity and, you know, lo and behold, it turns out that their brain is just as engaged. It's just engaged in different ways. So the traditional thought of people who are improving or not, quote unquote, preparing, you know, days ahead of time, that while they're improving, in a lot of ways, they're, they're working just as hard and just as much as the person who is practicing, practicing, practicing. Um, it's just a different, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a different part of the brain and it's a different condensed amount of time, let's say, right? And he can get more into those details. I was fascinated by a different thought, though. My fascinate, my takeaway was, wow, how often is it that because it's a beautiful idea, but how often is it that somebody has this kind of curious idea and access to a CAT scan machine, right? <laughs> and and you know, I'm working with with students. And the other part I should mention is, as uh, after Peace Corps, working at, at university, I was working mainly with international students. So kind of that Peace Corps experience really carried over, you know, and I was always looking at this at the lens of my students and wondering, wow, you know, this is so true. Like, um, how often are we just killing wonderful ideas that could truly change, you know, humanity in the world because the person with the idea doesn't have access to resources to explore that idea? 
Uh, and again, resources, everybody thinks just money, money, money. No, we're talking time. We're talking cat scan machines. We can talk <laughs> anything, right? So the, the kind of the goal was let's create this kind of serendipity collider. Let's, let's create events, experiences so that the person with the cat scan machine, but no real, you know, world shaking idea can interact with that person with that awesome idea, but no access to resources. So together they can collaborate to make this. And, and the kind of the philosophy was that we could really jumpstart innovation by bridging the gap between ideas and action. That's awesome. Um, so that's kind of where the genesis started, you know, five years ago. Uh, but if I could start the entire, so those are the two starting points I've been saying the last few you know, years. But just in this past year, I came to realize that if I'm truly honest, this all started much earlier in my life um, when I can't even give you a date. I'd say maybe five years old or six years old. You know, my, my father and mother were both public school teachers. And, and when, when they had kids, my mother took time off to raise us. So we were single income on a you know single public school uh, <laughs> teacher salary in, in rural Missouri. And, uh, you know, this isn't a woe is me story. It's just a reality. And um, my father, uh, you know, bless his heart, would work as many jobs over the summer as possible. And one of those happened to be a, uh, a world book encyclopedia salesman. We got free encyclopedias. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll never forget just this is way before the Internet, too. Right. So, you know, fun for me was just pulling out a random, you know, book A through Z and opening it up to a random page and reading whatever my finger laid, you know, landed on. And whatever word, idea, person, or place caught my, you know, curiosity to pull that book out <laughs> and look up that. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a caveman internet, I guess you could say. Um, the hyperlinks were my fingers from book to book in the encyclopedia set. And, uh, you know, hours later, my mom would come in the room and just see a mess of books open laying across the floor and tell me I have to clean them up. So I think that in a lot of ways probably the earliest starting point. Yeah, just sitting on on the floor in our living room, pulling out books, seeing where my curiosity could take me. That's cool. I actually remember that, too. And my kids did that. We had the Internet. That's how I was teaching them. But um, mm -hmm. I still bought a book of a set of encyclopedias because, you know, I'm from the old school. And so mm -hmm. I, I would find my kids doing that all the time. You know, they found that that's really interesting. I still think that's really important. But. So, you know, I love this message of what if. I think we don't have enough people that ask the question. I mean, we just go through the humdrum part of life. And sometimes yeah. we get caught in just reliving what our parents did with us and those types of things. But we never really ask the questions. But why or what if or, you know, those types uh -huh. of things. What do you feel like are maybe some common struggles that you see with people, you know, as you're working with them with these what if questions? Yeah, that's a great question. It's I'm, I'm stunned at how many people are... are maybe terrified is too strong of a word or not strong enough just to ask that question. That's you know, th like, yeah. th and, and again, I've, I've recently made the transition out of Missouri to the West coast so that things are getting better. But, uh, I faced the eight years I lived in Missouri. It was, I tell people, if I'm honest with you, you won't believe me, but the resistance that I found just asking people to come together to ask what if was and I don't say this lightly, it became dangerous. Yeah. And I found the the higher up, let's say the structure <laughs> um, that the person was, right? Um, the more the more almost offended they were 
by by the the gall that somebody would would propose asking what if because I think uh, especially in the middle of the country and in, in the middle of Missouri in particular change is not something that is is viewed upon positively and yeah. and again these are cliches and stereotypes and I try to live outside of those and uh, unfortunately uh, you know sometimes stereotypes exist for reasons and uh, yeah so so uh, I think that was a huge challenge and then. Um, Personally, then I had a hard time dealing with with that challenge, right? I, I'll say I probably failed uh, because my focus was always on on um, let's say the lower down that that system that structure, because the students, uh, a lot of even the teachers and the educators, were incredibly enthusiastic about asking what if. But the more we would push it and the more we would ask it, the more we resistance we would find higher up. And that's something I, I can no longer fight that battle in, in Missouri anymore, but it's it's from Missouri. But I hope it's uh, something I never stop fighting because uh, it, it's incredibly important. And the, the challenges to to people asking what if are very real yeah. um, from personal experience. I yeah. love that. That's a great answer. I think I, I see that in my own life here. Um, of course, we're kind of in the middle, too. You <laughs> know, Idaho is. Yeah. But yeah. it's definitely uh, there's something there. There's a power struggle for sure. You know, um, I, I, feel, yeah. I feel like that's what you're saying is like the people yeah. that are controlling things don't really want us to ask what if, because then mm-hmm. that may result with them not have holding all the cards. Does that make sense? Like, you know, and it's oh, yeah. sad. It's sad <laughs> in the 21st century, you know, where we are now. Yeah. That that's even that's even a, a struggle, but the the power struggle is definitely real. So for sure. So we on this podcast like to focus uh, especially on self educating, you know, yourself or nice. people who homeschool uh-huh. or unschool or those types of things. How do you feel like this mm-hmm. message fits well with educating oneself? <laughs> well, first I should also <laughs> uh, state out there, like, man, everybody in that space that you just mentioned, thank you. You are my idols. <laughs> uh, I am a huge fan, and any way I can continue connecting, supporting, working with you know homeschooling, independent uh, schooling, you know d- democratic education, unschooling. There's a lot of you know a lot of different groups like to label it differently, but um, to me they're all just kind of non-traditional like approaches, right? You're fighting the you're fighting the good fight, let's say, right? I think, and I'm bringing this. Maybe I should backtrack a little even more. Um, I didn't have much exposure to that growing up, aside from a couple school, you know, kids in the community I knew were homeschooled or for a while or that. But it was a very distant understanding. And a part of this journey, I want to say maybe four or five years ago, I was invited to speak at I, uh, International Democratic Education Conference in Boulder, Colorado. Oh, cool! And it was. So I open, and you know, like I'll say, you know, like uh, I tell people, I, I'll do anything twice. You know, I'll try anything mm-hmm. twice. Like I'll, if you invite me to speak, I'm there, right? I'll mm-hmm. do. Uh, I don't do a lot of uh, judging, and I'm open to any kinds of whatever. So I went there with zero expectations and, and completely ignorant on what homeschooling was all about, right? And not only was was I ignorant, if I were to be honest about what what I thought it was, it, it would probably be insulting, let's say, yeah. and completely wrong. Maybe right? a lot of stereotypes uh, for sure. <laughs> ex- Exactly. And uh, I try to be very open about, you know, where, where I've been wrong before. And this I don't, is I don't think any you know, homeschooler, unschooler listening is offended. It's like it's Good. a daily challenge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I want to do what I can. I want to be an agent to help, you know, change uh, people's perspective because it was really, you know, if we really start breaking down, like, you know, my evolution, I could not keep that out of the story. Um, because I met some amazing people there from Sugata Mitra was one of the speakers, right? 
to uh, some some people that I'm I'm still in touch with now who are running like it sounds kind of weird, but almost like massive homeschooling networks. Um, you know, they've gone beyond the home and they're actually forming communities mm-hmm. of of learners, right? And this is just so fascinating to me. So I was able, to, I was just thrown into the fire to speak, and it wasn't even speaking; it's really just learning, right? So I was asked to share what I do with What If and Curiosity, but I definitely learned more than I shared. And I was really impressed with just the overall approach to education and the, the willingness to, to step outside of this huge system of public education yeah. and yeah, make I'm, a difference. Yeah. I'm starting to kind of like the term unschooling better because, I mean, even when I'm home, I'm running from one and my kids aren't really, I mean, they might do some work here. But a lot of mm-hmm. their work is done just in other places other than a school. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. I mean, when you homeschool or unschool, like you said, you're untethered from a school, but you are yeah. accessing a lot of classes from a lot of different places and a lot of different communities. You're just mm-hmm. not you're not structured in a school telling you what to do. So, anyway, yeah. That's- and in fact, that's one of the things I get excited about is I share to people like even and, and so some of the people in the homeschooling community I found as being almost adversarial to the existing structures. So I, and I'm cool. I'm, I'm fine. I'm not, you know, you're, you're your own thing, but I was really happy to find the ones who are looking for that Venn diagram side. Right. Um, I'm not trying to convince anybody to do one or the other, but I do. I think one of the best ways to convince people isn't to necessarily say, all right, you have to go black or white. You're, you know, you're in public schools now and you have to jump automatically over to uh, uh, unschooling or, you know, a, a homeschooling kind of way. Right. Um, I like to look at ways that we can take kind of best practices from yeah. what's happening into homeschooling and kind of insert that into the public schools. Because I don't think it can change overnight, but if we can kind of take some of the best things that are going on outside of public schools and integrate them in, I think that might be the best way to kind of lead everybody to where the water is, right? And one of the big things is kind of like what you're talking about is just what if we looked at our communities as the classroom? You know, like decades from now, people are look back and go, wait a second, you're telling me these public schools had libraries inside the schools while there was a library inside of their town and they were both, you know, I mean, like this stuff is absurd. Uh, And there was probably a community college and something else. So like we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more for redundancies like this, right? Replication. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's just not efficient. But the other thing is imagine like, how does your community change if students view, you know, the world as their classroom so that they, it's not just about learning. I'm a big, um, when I was getting my, after the Peace Corps, I went and got my uh, master's in education. So now I'm officially an educator, right? But I was a big fan of Paulo Freire and uh, the pedagogy of the oppressed and, you know, education, not just about learning, but just relationship building, right? Hmm. And um, this idea of, uh, you know, how would, how would uh, your, you know, everything change if, if, you know, when students look at the, their communities as their classroom, that, you know, they... They're not just learning, but they're they're developing these relationships with the other people, their elders and their peers. So like, you know, it's not just, you know, you go to the bank and you can learn about math, but you're also developing an understanding and a personal relationship with the banker. Right. Wow, that is powerful. Me, yeah, it's powerful, but it's frustrating. Right. Because why aren't we <laughs> doing this? Yeah. Uh, um, so that's, I guess, one of the big things I learned about, you know, from the homeschooling networks is that. They're looking at communities as, as learning spaces yeah. and how can we really accelerate that? Yeah, I just recently uh, just one of my podcasts that went out was called Humility is the New Smart. And we talked a lot about relationships 
is going to become, or people who understand how to develop relationships are going to become very relevant in the future because of yep. our smart machine age. You know, they're going to have to mm -hmm. know how to do those relationships. And, and like you said, I mean, we totally discount those interlaced ages as an opportunity for learning and we segregate people. And in fact, like, mm -hmm. you know, one of my frustrations is when my children are out in the store, I actually have people coming up to me like, why aren't these kids in school where I'm going <laughs> like they're, they are are they're totally learning in this environment yep. and and a lot of people like older people sometimes love it because they want to feel like they're needed uh, in the society you want to teach these kids and so you know so i get kind of i get both directions of where their people are coming from but yeah let's use age to help us learn you know let's intermix mm -hmm. those ages and anyway awesome i, I didn't mean to interrupt no. you but <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. You you brought up a great point, though. Is like we we are living in such an amazing time in human history. For so, I mean, this is a whole other podcast. We could just riff on that, but <laughs> like with this technology that you just brought up, we're in this position where we should really have a, a more fluid approach to to learning, um, because there are certain things that age allows you, you know, wisdom and to understand. Like we will always, like adults will always have information, knowledge, and experience that's valuable and, and really a responsibility to pass on to younger yeah. people. Before we go on, please listen to this message. If you enjoy this content, you can help us with as little or as much as you'd like over at patreon.com backslash the luminous mind. These funds help us to continue to produce illuminating content with needed equipment and resources to spread the message of changing the educational paradigm. We appreciate all the ways our listeners help us continue this effort. We award them through patreon.com backslash the luminous mind by expanding exclusive content, giving away gifts, and giving patrons first seen products on patreon.com backslash the luminous mind. Check it out there. What's 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 what? What's what's what? I've got one question. What's what? Welcome back to Voluminous Minds with Matt Murray, who's helping us ask, what if? And then younger uh, people can teach older people like, um, you know, the specifically computer skills, you know, a lot of, I mean, my, exactly. my seven year old, you're in my brain. Yeah. yeah keep going. You're in my brain. Keep going. Yeah. Well, they, they can learn so much from each other, you know, and I think that's, uh -huh. we have this hierarchy power of adults who think you don't tell me what to do. You know, you're 20 years mm -hmm. younger than me, but there's so much that they could learn from each other if they just had a little bit of humility to recognize, you know, that the old guy can learn something from the young guy and the young guy, you know what I mean? Either way. Yep. So No, exactly. You hit it right on the head. <laughs> I, we've never had this, this gap in understanding of technology that we do today. And it, you said like you, you hit it perfectly. Um, it opens these doors for legitimate, genuine education from the, the bottom up as well as the top down. And yeah. by doing that, going back to that, that idea of relationships, again, it's not about disrespecting our elders or anything else. But, you know, if you look back in history, I think a lot of our 
you know, quote unquote, respect for elders came with the cost of a disrespect or devaluing of, of uh, younger people. Oh, right? Definitely. Yeah. And that hurts relationships. And again, that, that there's a long term cumulative effect on relationships, because then what happens is and I'm not a trained psychologist, so you're going to have to get someone else to you know, unpack this, but <laughs> it does develop a difficult long-term relationship, generationally speaking. And I think that impacts society as a whole because then people develop mistrust, right? You learn at a young age to maybe you shouldn't trust someone who's old. And then that goes on to everything from, you know, from religion to governments to you know, bosses to everybody else. We learn how to nod our heads and then talk behind their back, right? Um, <laughs> does that make sense? So yeah. I, if we can have this, this kind of more level of, of mutual respect and understanding cross-generationally, I think in the future, we'll, we'll have, you know, society will benefit. Um, I, I can't even imagine how right now, but, you know, the, that's for the future to determine. But I think it would have long-term uh, uh, impacts that would be very positive. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I feel bad. We've been talking for over over a half an hour now, and I haven't even gotten into your website or your message. Before we do in, get into oh. that, though, do you think you can give us a quick idea of how you think your paradigm has changed over time and with experience, you know, going back from being a starting English student mm -hmm. teacher to now, you know, how do you feel like that's changed? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And it's, it's changed in so many ways. It's, it's always difficult to, you know, nail it down to one. But I think in, in a lot of ways, I think it's it really has probably the biggest way it's changed is just constantly making it less about me as an individual, right? Always look. I feel like I'm I'm constantly evolving in ways to seek collaboration, to find sources of information and opportunities, not just from others but with others, right? Yeah. And I think that if 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 I could give a thirty thousand foot view of my the the evolution, I think. That's probably where it's been most because even as a teacher way back when after, you know, getting after Peace Corps and then after getting my master's in education and getting back into the classroom, you know, I was, again, air quotes here, taught to be student focused and to be student centered and prided myself and all that. But if I were to be honest with myself and to look at how I was teaching early on, you know, as opposed to how I'm doing it now, it wasn't a student focused as it should have been, right? Um, it wasn't, and not just student focused, but even a uh, colleague focused or community focused, um, you know, opening my ideas of, uh, of, uh, you know, the, again, going back to the homeschooling network that, um, you know, that, that, that I should be reaching out and including and, and incorporating a lot, uh, um, a much more comprehensive view of education. Right. So, so I think that's, that's probably the, the, if there's a single, you know, idea or more, that would be the way I've, I've evolved the most is to truly align my actions with my uh, philosophies and thoughts. Yeah, that's awesome. I just read a study that talked about that, that the people who thought they were the most, you know, knowledgeable in a situation or whatever, and they're the ones talking mm -hmm. and raising their hand are actually the least knowledgeable. I think as time, I mean, that goes back to that experience and with age is that mm -hmm. we realize that over time, we really don't, we aren't as smart as we think we are. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, we, we yeah. know, we understand that there's a great community out there that we can collaborate with and learn from. And sometimes mm -hmm. when we're first starting out, yeah, it's all about us that we think we know everything, you know, that we're all educated and all that. That, but yeah, that's how I feel with this podcast for sure. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> well, it's definitely, well, more I think anything me focused, anything is anything of value has many. And again, this is easy for me to say as an English professor and a writer, it's like you know, write your drafts, third draft, fourth draft, you know, mm -hmm. you get to the final draft. But, um, you know, the more iterations, the more, and as an entrepreneur, I've learned this as well. 
And a lot of times everybody likes to think everything's like a overnight success, right? Or, uh, you know, it just happens. And then you just, I was reading something recently about like, especially studying artists that, you know, the one thing that nobody talks about, um, that when you study the success, uh, super successful artists, that the one thing that they all have in common was volume of work. Like when you look at Picasso, for example, everybody's like, oh, he's amazing. You go to a museum and you can see all of these Picassos, yeah? But what you're not seeing is that for every single Picasso hanging on a wall, there's literally thousands <laughs> on a piece of paper or that didn't get sold or that, you know, just were yeah. scrapped and everything else. And nobody really focuses on that. And it's just down the line of all of these artists that they would just churn out work over and over and over. Um, and then someone was sharing a quote um, just recently. I can probably find this clip because I, I actually watched it. There was an interview of Stephen King and George R.R. R. Martin um, were speaking. And uh, you know, George R.R. R. Martin wrote Game of Thrones. He doesn't just write novels. He, write, he creates universes, right? And of course, Stephen King, I don't know how many novels he's written. They were talking about their writing process. And it came up where somebody asked George R. R. like, he said, yeah, we write every day and all this. And there's something to the effect of like, you know, well, what's it like when, you know, a day that you take off or that you don't write? And George R. R. Martin just goes, what? He goes, I, I don't understand the question. And it was just like <laughs> the, 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 the thought of spending a day without putting pen to paper was so foreign to him. And that just sparked me that, yeah, that's what it's about. Everybody looks at, oh, they, they only see what's on the shelves. But the, the, the true artist or the true creator, and we are all creators, we're all artists, right? It, they're constantly working on their craft. They're constantly putting something out there. So, yeah. Yeah, a tiny bit a day is a big, you know, helps in the long run to write that novel or to yeah. really move that message forward. I, I thought it was interesting, too. I just saw a video of how um, in the chapel... One of the chapels in uh, Florence, and I've been there, but I can't remember the name of it. My husband would know right off the top of his head. But um, down um, in that chapel, they actually underneath have found Michelangelo's, a lot of his drawings. So in this chapel underneath in the kind of the basement, you can actually see a lot of Michelangelo's sketches. And they're actually thinking of going in and opening it up to the public so you can go down there and see. But there's literally thousands of drawings of just like, you know, how to draw an arm or how to draw or, you know, there's portions of like the statue David that have been driven or drawn out. But you can see the process that he went through. You know, it wasn't just he was a great, masterful painter, artist. He actually, you know, it takes time to develop that craft. That's awesome. Sorry, that, that's a whole nother topic. We could spend a whole nother time. Oh, no, not at all. That's, but um, I want to I, I hear more about your website, though, and your message, and maybe three points that you feel like you want our audience to understand about that message. Yeah, so the, the book is just uh, the book of what if, uh, you know, and the website I'm directing people now to is, is beluga.org, and that's where a lot of the work that I've been doing in person is now having a digital life. So as far as the overall message is, is really, and this is where we kind of come together, both the work I'm doing with Curiosity and What If, Curiosity-Based Learning and uh, Beluga, is, is the overall message is this, you know, there are three points. It's, you know, stay curious, stay curious, stay curious. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we can do more than that, right? So um, one of the things that I love working with, with Beluga is, it's, it's just a 100% free digital platform. So there's no cost. There's no, you know, we're not selling anything. The, the goal is to connect classrooms. And we do work with uh, not just traditional classrooms, but homeschooling networks, right? Um, 
we just have to know it's a closed platform just for educators and students. So it's a safe environment. But it's just it just connects classrooms um, from anywhere in the world together so that they can learn about the world with the world. And, you know, of course, that learning is driven by curiosity. So we work to not even I would like to say spark that curiosity, but it's already existing. Right. So we like to we like to pull that curiosity together and then point it in positive directions. So once we can get um, classrooms and students, educators who are curious, we can pull them together through the question asking process and connecting their classrooms so that they're actually learning about, you know, science, math, history, the things that, you know, we, you know, have to learn, but through the context of culture and uh, experiences that are different than where they are, what they, what they know. So I guess the other advice is for people um, not in a classroom to just, you know, that approach. Uh, like I mentioned before, I'm down here in Mexico City, and this is my first time in Mexico, and uh, I can never stress the importance of travel. Um, and I think to me, travel and curiosity are just kind of like left foot, right foot in a lot of ways. <laughs> and, and you don't just have to travel far, right? You, you can travel in your own community. You can travel in your own state, your own city, wherever. But just being able to travel with this curious mindset. So uh, I think that's where most of my learning you know, has come from, from getting super curious and, and letting that curiosity push me to new places, uh, either physically or, or mentally. Well, and, and with travel, too, like sometimes when we live someplace for a long set of time, we start to get very habitual. You know, we go to the same places and we do the same things. And when you're traveling, your senses, I mean, you're you're when you live in some place permanently and you're in this habitual habit, your senses become deadened because you already know what this smells like or you already know, you know. But when you travel, all of a sudden, all your senses are completely and utterly awake because you're out of that habitual mm -hmm. range for sure. So exactly. And I kind of wondered, you know, you, we talk about curiosity and how important that is, but I, I kind of wonder if people struggle, one of the other common struggles that maybe people have is really being honest about what they're curious about. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, I found that yeah. with my own kids, like they don't sometimes want to tell me or to be truly honest about what they're curious about because it might I don't know. It might they they might not like the way that people perceive their curiosity. Does that make sense to you? Or certainly. And, and in fact, oh wow, there's a lot of thoughts running through my head out of everything you're just saying there. I'll see if I, I'm going to answer <laughs> the first one or and see if I even go on some others. But uh, it, spot on with uh, you know there can be a fear to be you know curious, and, and that's one of the the reasons I like um, I like framing things through what if because what if uh, at least from my philosophy, the, the point that I approach it is it creates a third space, uh, a third space of questioning. So that when you ask what if, it's not really you, right? <laughs> Does that, so yeah, you're not no, saying I think or I believe or I want to know. We personalize so much, right? And, and I, this is a really interesting statement you made because I usually think of the third space in terms of giving advice to instead of saying, you know, or, or to other people in yeah. a lot of ways. Like when somebody says, you know what, even if they're right, if they say, you know what, you should exercise or you should diet or why don't you do this or why don't you do that, right? They could be 100% correct. <laughs> but by saying I think or you should, the person on the other side has a built-in excuse to ignore the advice yeah. because they don't like that person yeah. or yeah, but, but the I message don't trust is that not person. received, right? I mean, they're feeling, they're exactly. feeling uh, maybe, um, I don't know how to, how to word it, but they're maybe feeling like they're 
being pushed or forced to exactly. type of thing. Yeah, exactly. And when you say what if, you know, nobody owns it. It's like if, and even if you're the, the, the person giving the suggestion, if you say, what if you do this and they end up not doing it, it's not as personal. It's not like, oh, they're, you know, it's because what if exists beyond the, the people involved. So what you're saying about that, that danger of getting curious, if you just say, well, what if we did this? What if we did that? You know, there's, there's still a little bit of a distance that can um, make it safe or at least feel safe to, to explore ideas and thoughts, um, that you may not be quite as certain about. Yeah, I love that. So, and do you want to give us an idea? Um, you know, I got on Beluga, but um, uh-huh. it, it definitely, like you said, it's definitely a very closed um, group. You actually have to sign up mm-hmm. for it. You know, tell yeah. me, tell me what you would find um, as soon as you uh, signed up for it. Does it have different classrooms? Uh-huh. I mean, what? How does it look? Yeah. So um, the one of it sounds it's going to sound cliched saying it this way. Um, But really the best way to describe it, from my opinion, is like if if Facebook and Skype had a baby, um, (laughs) it would be it would be that. Right. So what you can do on it is as a as an educator, you get a news feed, right, where you get posts both from Beluga, but other educators that can be uh, any form of media. Right. It could be written. It could be video. It could be pictures about lessons, activities things that they're doing in their classrooms. It can also be like, here's, you know, here's a national anthem or here's a picture of our, our food. So on one level, it's becoming a social network for educators to connect with each other, to share good ideas, learn new lessons, and just, um, you know, celebrate each other, right? And then the students can go on uh, a news feed and when they see, say, uh, the students in Ghana posting their national anthem, the students can then sing their national anthem or take a picture of their flag and put it kind of like a you know like a, a comment box in Facebook, and then the the other part is the students once their class is registered, they get registration codes, so they develop personal profile, and these profiles aren't just like what's your favorite color or anything. <laughs> they're they're questions to dig deep into who they are as a person and as a culture, and then once they answer their profile questions, they're able to connect with other students their age in different parts of the world. So kind of like a digital pin pal. And from there, they can connect in class or out of class to continue learning about each other. The Skype part comes in that there's a video tool so that teachers, educators can speak to each other directly when designing lesson plans or activities, but also they can Skype classes together. So classes, we just had a class in Macedonia singing their national anthem for a class in Nigeria who then got up and sang their national anthem. We can do this all live via video right there in the classroom. But what gets me super excited, so that's all the kind of the tech side, but, you know, as one of my mentors said, is, you know, like, technology is never it. There's always got to be something else, right? So they do, Beluga does something called impact campaigns, where the entire system is gamified. So every interaction a student does, they get points for their classroom. And then if they, their class would like to, they can start what's called an impact campaign, where their class says, you know what, we need this. And this has been anything from tablets to laptops to soccer balls. So I think a school in Afghanistan wanted an archery set, right? And a school in Ghana needed cement to build a library. So whatever it is that their school needs, they make a campaign around it. And then Beluga assigns a point value to it. And once they get enough points, Beluga will send them that thing. And during the early beta test, this is where we get all goosebumpy, is uh, during the beta test – a school in the United States said, you know what? There's some private school up in New York, and they're like, we kind of have everything we need. It's 
could we donate our points to this class in Kenya where, you know, we have friends now? <laughs> and Beluga's oh, like, you know awesome. what? What a wonderful idea. So now there's a, a sharing or a, a donating point system so that we'll have students collaborating together to not only, it's just like it's hitting all these things, right? They're learning about the world with the world. They're still doing science, math, and everything they have to to make their administrators happy. But they're also forming relationships with other people and cultures around the world, working together to give them things. But one of the things that really makes me smile is they're also learning that aid isn't just about money, right? So many options now. It's like, all right, let's help out this country. Let's have a fundraiser and raise a bunch of money and send it to them, right? That we're able to start at a very young age, getting young people to realize that resources aren't, you know, it's not just money, that they can have an impact on the world and other people just by doing their homework, right? Just by saying hello. Yeah. So I get really excited about the potential for all this. It's it's only a two-year company. Uh, I've been working with them for this last year and just seeing how quickly we can grow and connect the world is a just really inspiring. And you said that a single student can also sign up and be on this platform as well, right? I mean, yes, we're, yes. we're talking so, about self-directed students and all of that too. But. Oh, that's one of the other wonderful things about it. So a student can go outside like after school while they're home and just hop on and do stuff. And then the teacher has control and she can see what, you know, how active the students are. So anything that the student does the, the, that her, stu- her teacher can still be aware of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also we're finding these new opportunities where there's a student in a rural part of the country who is very interested in robotics and they didn't have those classes. But because on Beluga, they were able to connect the student and I think it was Hong Kong, they were able to now connect the students so that the student, and I, I think it was rural Missouri, is taking lessons or getting access to classes on robotics in Hong Kong. Wow. I'm going to have to look more into this because that's a whole nother, I mean, like I said, a whole nother podcast of of opportunity. That's awesome. So great. Just before I forget, because that is on my notes and I know your email is about referrals and stuff. uh, One of the people I would like to refer is the the founder of Beluga. His name's Evan Schwartz. And I know he'd be more than happy um, not only to speak with you, but also to learn from you, what would be some great ways that Beluga could get more integrated with the homeschooling and say non-traditional kind of communities out there? Well, that's awesome. Well, I definitely, after we're done recording, I definitely want to get that from you because I love to hear more and be able to connect my audience to it for sure. So, but I just wanted to know if we have covered all the bases with the book of what if and your message before we move on to some of our final questions, is there anything more you want to say about that? Or do you feel like it's been, no, I think, uh, I think we we've got it we've got it pretty well we got it pretty well covered. Awesome. Um, okay. Oh, I, I will just say one before I forget because you, you mentioned something before about uh, um, travel and getting lost and stuff. It, it did remind me of one of the questions in the book of What If is uh, what there was no luck, and uh, I always just personally always think it's dangerous just for people to just rely on luck, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I, it's like ah, there's got to be a better way. Um, but people have actually studied luck and we can scientifically prove that luck doesn't exist, but we can also, uh, when you look into it, you can also find ways to at least, um, generate more luck or the appearance of luck in your life. And one of the things that the studies show is taking different routes to work or the growth. You were talking about this earlier and that just kind of triggered that thought about even in your own town or your own, your daily routine, 
finding new or taking different ways to get there because it'll force you to come across new things, which will trigger new ideas and they'll make it feel like you're lucky. But it's really just a matter of traveling in different routes. <laughs> so I, I love that. that. Yeah. We recently moved just across town and we've noticed that like things that we I mean, we've lived in this town for, you know, two decades or something and things that we didn't even know just because we moved and now we're taking different routes. All of a sudden we're seeing our own little tiny world a lot differently. So I totally that's awesome. A great concept to think well, about. Um well, and I want to hear about, I mean, we talked about how to keep that curiosity, you know, ask those questions, but what other habits do you feel like in your personal life would help make you successful? Wow, that's a great one. I may have covered, I was trying to think, asking questions, traveling. Um, you know, I do a lot of writing and not even writing to share, but I, I usually have a moleskin, like just a little notebook with me. And just having that, again, not even necessarily a personal diary with deep, dark secrets, but just having something kind of that you were talking before about that tactile thing about, you know, pulling an encyclopedia off the shelves, just having pen on paper, just being able to write down thoughts, not with no pressure of like, no, I've got to remember this later, but just being able to, it helps you kind of like be in the moment, I think, because uh, life can get so chaotic and everything. And just kind of have a pen and paper, it could be a buck slip, it could be a notebook, a moleskin, however fancy you want to get, but just have access to something like that around you at all times. So that when ideas do come up, you can sketch them down or write them down. Um, I think that helps us uh, refine ideas and, um, you know, kind of uh, keep track of them. Yeah. And and they come, ideas come at the weirdest times, you know, usually when you're out and you don't have a pen and paper or, you know, pen and paper. So if you have exactly. that always with you, then you're always going to be prepared. So that's awesome. I want to hear maybe long term things that you plan on to do and how you feel like that's working into the legacy that you hope to leave. Wow. That's, you know, long-term, I always tell people, I, uh, my dream is, is someday to become rich enough that I can get back into the classroom. Um, <laughs> so, but until then I always want to, uh, long-term is, is just finding new ways to stay as connected as possible to students and educators. Um, and again, I'm going to keep going back to you bringing up the homeschooling network, right? It's not just as many, but as many different kinds of, of educators and students, um, globally, but also domestically, just to, to keep those, those, that relationship, it'd be very easy for somebody in my position right now, I think, to just completely get farther and farther away from the classroom and the actual kind of like educational settings. And just to make sure that that, that connection is always rich and always um, uh, being, being nurtured. Yeah. I kind of stuff like I, this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I kind of worry about that with myself, you know, like I do a lot of educational philosophy of like, oh, well, this mm-hmm. would be a better way and stuff, but to actually use it in an applicable way, you know, I never know because <laughs> it's all philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so definitely keeping it relevant by staying in the community helps a lot. So do you have any maybe final parting words for our listeners and how we can connect with you? D- did we finish the legacy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think okay. so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I, I'm we, legacy. It's like I always feel like uh, that's I've never really given it any thought. <laughs> you know, what I mean, <laughs> I, I always I guess as an educator, I always look at like my my legacy is my students, right? So it's whatever whatever they're doing that's kind of like the benchmarks for my life is is uh, where what they're up to, what they're doing, and what they're accomplishing. So, so that's kind of where I always look, but as far as advice, you know, again, this is, <laughs> you're, everybody's gonna get sick of it. Stay curious, right? Um, keep finding new ways to be curious aside from that, like get in touch with me. I'm, I'm very happy to, to be in touch with, with anybody. Uh, like I said, I rarely say no to anything, which I've, I've 
drives me crazy, but also I think pushes me forward. I'm pretty easy to get in touch with. My, you know, Matt Murray, uh, M-U-R-R-I-E. I work most of my work in communication is on Facebook or Twitter. And if people want to connect with me there, I'm more than happy to connect with them, their their educational communities, uh, whomever, to find ways to seek collaboration and really just push forward that that ultimate goal of making sure education is is what it is, you know, what the future deserves. That's awesome. Well, what a great podcast. I think we went off on some fun little tangents, but definitely some great food for thought. But again, we've been chatting with Matt Murray. He's the author of The Book of What If. You can find him on beluga.org, or I'm going to be sure to connect the information that we've discussed today on our website as well. But thank you so much, Matt, for joining us and helping to light our minds on fire on this important topic of education. I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. To learn more about Matt Murray, go to our show notes at luminousmind.net. Be sure to become a subscriber to our free email list and help us to continue production of illuminating content by sponsoring us at patreon.com backslash theluminousmind to get exclusive content. Subscribe on YouTube, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Google+, Pinterest, and now Instagram. To help us grow, consider these easy ways. Tell your friends about us. Leave us a review. Share our content. Tell us how we can help you so together we can continue to light minds on fire and change the paradigm of education. 